It is my pleasure to have the opportunity to introduce uh, Lewis Learman. Um, probably Lewis needs no introduction to this group. He is clearly one of the heroes of the, uh, the whole concept of sound money. He's also uh, written lots of books uh, in regards to both economics and history. We have a couple of his books here today, The True Gold Standard, Money, Gold, and History, and if they sell out, we'll get you some more, so just leave your, your names there. He's been in the Wall Street Journal many times over the years. I think probably the first time he became really visible was back in 1981 when he was part of the U.S. Gold Commission and had a series of recommendations that, if implemented, would have led to a much better quality of life for us today, if you actually look back in, in retrospect. He is uh, not just in economics. In 2005, he got the National Humanities uh, Medal at the White House for his scholarly contributions. He won the William E. Simon Prize for Lifetime Achievement in Social Entrepreneurship. He's written several books on Lincoln. Um, he is a historian in addition to being a, a, a great economist. He was uh, the Carnegie Teaching Fellow at Yale and the Woodrow Wilson Fellow at Harvard. He has honorary degrees, and we are really pleased to have Lewis here today. Lewis, thank you. So I probably ought to begin by explaining the Carnegie Teaching Fellowship at Yale and the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship at Harvard. The truth is that um, I started out as a teacher and instructor, lowly instructor, um, I got paid $3,500 to teach at Yale. So I decided to apply for a Woodrow Wilson to Harvard, where I taught for a year. And there they paid me $2,500 a year. <laughs> so my daddy said to me, son, he didn't go to college. He said, son, if you're going to have to take a 30% discount in your income every year in the vocation of teaching, time for you to find a, a new vocation. So I went in the U.S. Army, listed, and there they paid me $70 a month. <laughs> now, that was the bottom of the first of my many bear markets. <laughs> I have to begin by thanking uh, Mr. Allison and Cato, uh, scholars here um, whom you've heard, men like Larry White, George Selgin, uh, from whom I have profited as much uh, as you have uh, today. Uh, just a remarkable team of scholars, Mr. O'Driscoll, John Allison himself, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity for appearing here with such a distinguished group of uh, scholars and teachers. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Dorn for putting this together, uh, Mr. Allison and Dr. Dorn for inviting me. Since uh, we are gathered in this hall to evaluate the history of the Federal Reserve System, we cannot help but wonder whither the Fed, and to consider wherefore its reform, even what and how to do it. But first, let us remember whence we came one century ago. As a soldier of France, no one knew better than Professor Jacques Rueff, the famous French central banker, that World War I had brought an end to the preeminence of the classical European state system and its monetary regime, the classical gold standard. 
World War I had decimated the flower of European youth. It had destroyed the European continent's industrial primacy. No less ominously, the historic monetary standard of commercial civilization collapsed into the ruins occasioned by the Great War. The international gold standard, the gyroscope of the Industrial Revolution, the guarantor of more than 100 years of price stability, of unprecedented economic growth, the common currency of the world trading system. All this was brushed aside by the belligerents. Into the breach marched unrestrained central bank credit expansion, the express government purpose of which was to finance the colossal budget deficits occasioned by war and its aftermath. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that quantitative easing, as was mentioned earlier, was actually inaugurated with World War I. We can see also that the potential of discretionary central banking in the United States coincided with the founding of the Federal Reserve System. Now, because of the Federal Reserve Act and the fact that it had been designed to reinforce the international gold standard, such an outcome would become one of the great ironies of American monetary history. So to interpret the financial events associated with the Great War and their effect on the ensuing 100 years, my colleague John Mueller and I have highlighted two crucial events of 1913, only two of many. First, of course, the establishment of the Federal Reserve itself. And second, the publication by the young John Maynard Keynes of his book, Indian Currency and Finance. Either event by itself would probably not have forestalled resumption of monetary stability and economic growth under the pre-war classical gold standard, but the inauguration of the Federal Reserve and the monetary ideas of Keynes taken together gave rise over the next century to the perfect financial storm. Keynes had argued in his book, Indian Currency and Finance. I quote him, whether a central bank holds its reserves in gold or in foreign exchange is a matter of comparative indifference. India, in her use of an informal gold exchange standard, far from being anomalous, is in the forefront of monetary progress, heading toward, as he called it, the ideal currency of the future. In this pre-war book, Keynes foresaw the interwar reserve currency roles of sterling and the dollar, an official reserve currency system which Keynes and other British monetary experts succeeded in pressing the European great powers to adopt at the Genoa Conference of 1922. It is no secret that Keynes hoped to forestall repayment of huge sterling debts held by other countries in the form of sterling foreign exchange reserves. In 1932, 10 years after Genoa and after Britain had abandoned sterling convertibility of gold in 1931, Professor Rueff analyzed the real-world problems of Keynes' reserve currency theory for the second time since presciently in 1929. He described the role of the gold exchange standard in causing the third 1930 financial crisis and the Great Depression. Briefly, 
Rueff pointed out that when a monetary authority accepts dollars or sterling claims for its official reserves, instead of settling its balance of payments deficits in gold, purchasing power, here I quote Rueff himself, purchasing power has simply been duplicated. And thus, for example, the American market is in a position to buy in Europe and in the United States at the same time, tending therefore to cause asset or price inflation. Conversely, the sudden rapid liquidation of foreign exchange reserves in sterling and the dollar can cause equally rapid shrinkage of the banking and credit system. Thus deflation and depression, as in the 1930-33 episode, not to mention the most recent one of 2008. Ironically, after World War II, the same gold exchange standard, based this time on the re unique reserve currency role of the dollar, was reestablished at the heart of the Bretton Woods international monetary system. Though an improvement on the interwar monetary system, Rueff correctly predicted and did try to prevent in his writings and his campaigning, tried to prevent the dissolution of Bretton Woods, which after perennial foreign exchange crisis, substantially based on the reserve currency system, it collapsed in 1971. Now, I cite Professor Rueff's experience during the interwar period because among other major events, he was involved in the successful stabilizations of the French franc after both world wars. As secretary of the French treasury, the youngest French secretary of the treasury, and as deputy governor of the, um, the Bank of France, his hands-on experience reinforced his path-breaking views on monetary economics. To you, my colleagues, I recommend his theoretical and policy studies not least for the practical reason that his genius inspired two vital restorations of franc convertibility to gold in 1926 and in 1959, even as Great Britain failed in 1925 and the United States in 1971. Rueff's success, I believe, was in part due to the fact that he was not only a gifted monetary economist, but he was also a successful practitioner, whereby he had shorn himself of the illusions of his academic counterparts. <laughs> Considering his more than 20 publications, I have only a little time here to emphasize a few of Rueff's monetary axioms, especially those linked to our agenda, namely central banking. I shall try to put them in the context of one century of Federal Reserve operating techniques and their results though no match for George Selden's presentation itself. Rueff's fundamental rule by which to guide a central bank in a reasonably free economy is first to understand the simple truth that no central bank, not even the mighty Federal Reserve System, can determine the quantity of money in circulation. The conceits of John Maynard Keynes and his followers to the contrary notwithstanding. I note here that Rueff and Keynes debated one another personally in Paris, London, and in Geneva. That I also must mention, they used the terms money and cash balances interchangeably. You will remember that Keynes declared in the 13th chapter of the general theory, I quote Keynes, that the quantity of money is not determined by the public, 
Moreover, Keynes presumed, I quote him again, that the authorities can govern the authorities can govern the activity of the economic system by varying the quantity of money. Now, in these academic conceits originates the regime of central bankers as central planners. But the truth of experience and the empirical data itself show only that a central bank may influence indirectly the stock of money and credit, but upon a moment's reflection, here and now, it is clear that the central bank cannot determine the quantity of money in circulation. In a non-totalitarian society, only the money users, consumers, and producers in the market determine the cash balances they desire to hold. Sovereign consumers do not consult the authorities when they freely vary their currency and their bank deposit holdings. Has any solvent person in this audience been unable on a daily basis to increase or dec decrease the cash balances he wishes to hold by varying his stock of other assets in exchange for money? This rhetorical question itself leads directly to another crucial issue. During the past century, the important links between central bank monetary policies, the rate of inflation, the variations of the money stock, the level of employment, and the rate of economic growth have caused much debate among the self-appointed experts and, of course, the central bankers. For three generations, it has been generally thought by neo-Keynesian, and I believe true, also monetarist central bankers, that the quantity of money and credit in circulation, the level of interest rates, economic growth, the level of employment, and the rate of inflation can be coordinated at optimum levels by central bank credit policy. May I now firmly say that to the best of my knowledge, as a participant in the market for 50 years, no one who believes this hypothesis and as an investor or banker has systematic, who has systematically acted on it has been able to escape either insolvency, bailout, or major losses. But I do confess that neo-Keynesian and monetary, monetarist quantity theories of money and monetary policy and still hang on. In the end, neo-Keynesians and monetarists who believe that the central bank can determine and control the quantity of money in circulation and thereby the economy could not deny the evidence of reality. Taking only one example, between 2008 and 2013, the Federal Reserve more than quadrupled the monetary base but the quantity of money in circulation, say M1 or even M2, increased only by a small fraction, especially a small fraction in proportion to the central bank's monetary base itself. Subsequently, the CPI increased on average only 2% annually. Moreover, economic recovery has been the slowest of the post-war years. So if then a central bank cannot determine the quantity of money in circulation, nor the rate of inflation, nor the rate of economic growth, what, according to Jacques Rueff, for example, can a central bank realistically do? To conduct operations of the central bank, there must, of course, be a target. But if the target is manifold, that is, embracing price stability, the rate of inflation, and employment levels deemed consistent with a certain level of money and credit, 
Central bankers must then know not only the magnitude of the supply of money actually desired in the market by the participants, but central bankers must also know the precise future desire in the market to hold those cash balances, such that the twain, namely the supply and the demand for money, shall meet. Now, it is true that central and commercial banks supply cash and or credit balances, but it is individuals and businesses in the market, the users of money who decide for themselves the cash balances they wish to keep or to spend. This they do for their own multiple preferences. Chakruev himself took pains to clarify the nature of central bank powers in the form of a general axiom. Because the money stock cannot be precisely determined by the Federal Reserve, nor can it determine precisely the rate of inflation and economic growth, it follows inherently that the monetary policy of the central bank should not target the money supply, nor the rate of an interest, nor the rate of inflation, nor the level of employment, nor the level of economic growth. But if the goal of the central bank were to rule out sustained inflation and sustained deflation, that is a market-based policy consistent with the optimum use of the factors of production associated with steady economic growth, then the operating target of the central bank must simply be to influence the supply of cash balances in the market such that they tend over time to equal the level of desired cash balances. To attain this goal, the central bank must abandon their three-generation-old hyperactive open market operations, which give off false price signals and more than anything else, destabilize the financial and the economic markets. Instead, the central bank, having abandoned open market operations, must then remobilize the discount rate. The central bank would set the discount rate above the market rate when, for example, the price level is rising, providing money and credit only at an interest rate, which is not an incentive to create excess cash balances. In fact, Sustained, undesired excess cash balances constitute the necessary condition of inflation. Indeed, if the principal target of a workable monetary policy were long-run price stability and optimum economic growth, the banking system should supply bank credit and currency in the amount which is approximately equal, equal over time to the demand for them. Now. If the supply of cash balances is approximately equal to the desire to hold them over time, the price level must tend toward reasonable price stability. If there were no excess cash balances, there would be no excess demand, and thus there could be no sustained inflation. Moreover, with such a target, there should be no sustained deflation caused by scarcity of desired cash balances, because in scarcity circumstances associated with incipient deflation, the central bank would lower the discount rate below the market and monetize eligible liquid financial claims offered to the central bank, thereby supplying scarce cash balances to the participants in the markets who actually desired them. Now, Rueff's monetary theory and 
policy finally came to grips with, indeed it modified, the famous and controversial law of markets of Jean-Baptiste Say. Building, of course, on Say's insights, but perfecting the, the flawed quantity theory of money. Rueff reformulated the quantity theory of money in the following proposition. Aggregate demand is equal to the value of aggregate supply augmented by the difference in the variations during the same market period between the quantity of money in circulation and the aggregate cash balances desired. So long as the price mechanism is reasonably free and the factors of production are reasonably mobile, this Rueff axiom best describes what actually happens in the free market of ubiquitous monetary exchange. Rueff demonstrated that in a free economy, Say's law does tend to operate, namely that the total value of supply tends to equal the total value of demand, provided, however, that the market for cash balances tends toward equilibrium, thus ruling out sustained inflation and sustained deflation. Rueff emphasized that it is the difference between the variations of the quantity of money in circulation compared to the aggregate cash balances desired during each market period that renders Say's law an imperfect theoretical representation of a monetary economy. Now, this is important for several, several reasons. It may be said that modern monetary regulation by central banks has ignored these fundamental propositions. For example, it was conventional wisdom of the monetarists, led by the distinguished Milton Friedman, to presume that they could regulate inflation, the growth of economy, the growth of the economy, the monetary base, or the total quantity of money in circulation through a so-called money stock rule. By manipulating central bank open operations or the interest rates such that the money stock or the monetary base would grow, say, 3% annually. In practice, the Federal Reserve has failed in such an effort. Only one salient example being the disastrous episode of 1979 to 1982. It must be said that Professor Reed, uh, Friedman himself humbly admitted failure in a remarkable 2003 Financial Times interview, whereupon he gave his considered final judgment on the issue. This is what he said. I quote him. The use of the quantity of money as a target has not been a success. However, Friedman's nemesis, the neo-Keynesian revival, despite abject failure in the 1960s and 1970s, has now mutated into the combination of unrestrained fiscal policy, budget deficits, and explicit quantitative easing in order to finance government spending and the housing agencies. So we ask. Is there a better way, grounded in the evidence of monetary history, about which we heard so much this morning? There is, of course, an available and an availing historic monetary regime, one which has been tested for centuries in the marketplace, a much simpler, more reliable market-based technique, proven as it surely was in the only trustworthy economic laboratory open to the study of human institutions, namely the laboratory of human history. 
as all here know, the essential institutional mechanism of the classical gold standard is to define a unit of money equal to a weight unit of gold, two of the many merits of which are by market mechanisms to regulate and to limit central bank discretion, such that the price level may be stable over the long run. Or in the alternative, one could establish and maintain currency convertibility to gold in a regime of free banking with no central bank. But it seems that academics have argued for more than 100 years that the gold monetary standard, through a proven price, though a proven price level sta stabilizer, absorbs too much real resources in the process of gold production and is therefore, in economic and social terms, too costly. This is, if I may, a false proposition. Milton Friedman estimated the cost of a gold monetary standard at about 2.5% of output, whereas subsequent detailed analysis suggests much less, probably closer to 0.225%. That is to say, less than one-tenth of Friedman's famous estimate. This discrepancy was apparently caused by the rapid growth of gold money, not least because of the stability of the price level provided by private disorder. Indeed, Professor Lawrence White calculates the percentage even lower at 0.05% because Friedman ignored the conservation of gold natural to the markets through fractional reserve banking, assuming as he did, as Friedman did, a 100% gold-backed currency. Now, as any active financial market participant learns the hard way, just look at the gray hair, such a de minimis cost of a reliable monetary standard would be but a minor fraction of the immense transaction and uncertainty costs borne by the manipulated, volatile, floating exchange rate system of more than four decades. Despite all denials, the competitive currency depreciations characteristic of today's floating exchange rate system are, without a doubt, designed to transfer unemployment to one's neighbor, and by means of an undervalued currency to gain share of market in manufactured, labor-intensive, value-added, world-traded goods. If these competitive depreciations and undervalued pay currencies are sustained, Floating exchange rates combined with the twin budget and balance of payments deficits and central planning by central bankers will, at regular intervals, blow up the world trading system. This is so partly because the American budget deficits and balance of payments deficits were, they still are, almost automatically financed by new money and credit created by the Federal Reserve and by the global banking system and by the perverse mechanisms of the reserve currency regime based worldwide on the dollar. These de facto credit cards supply money without limit to the U.S. government, thus jamming the balance of payments adjustment mechanism, thereby causing dollar balances to accumulate in the official reserves of foreign monetary authorities. These dollar reserves held in the trillions by foreign monetary authorities are not inert, safely stored away in some vault. They are immediately reinvested directly or indirectly in the dollar market for United States securities.
They not only finance U.S. Treasury debt and the growth of government, but from the year 2000 until the financial crisis of 2008, foreign dollar reserves were increasingly invested in higher-yielding federal agency securities, thereby directly financing the housing bubble. There is not sufficient time to dwell here on all the market mechanisms which did sustain the effective balance of payments adjustment mechanism under the classical gold standard. But I have tried to show elsewhere that the classical or the true gold standard without official reserve currencies is the least imperfect monetary, monetary regime of history. Proven in practice, mutual convertibility of major currencies to gold was the coherent, equitable, trustworthy monetary regime by which to mitigate the curse of financial bubbles and currency wars. It was a regime designed by subtle and supple market-based rules to bring about global trade and financial rebalancing and to sustain a reasonably stable price level over the long run. The entire system being based on stable exchange rates. And as the evidence shows, the outcome was steady, long-term economic growth. In a word, free trade without stable exchange rates will prove, I believe, to be a fantasy. Thus do I argue that by means of the restoration of the true gold standard, rapid economic growth and world trade and investment would resume worldwide. Many gold standard restorations of the past, even in the most dilapidated conditions of inflation, deflation, and depression, have led to robust economic growth, the chronicles of which led to a Nobel Prize for Thomas Sargent in 2011. For economists now to say, that such a restoration is politically impossible is to venture into political forecasting, a doubtful enterprise, given their record for economic forecasting. <laughs> Historical precedent does suggest that after restoration of convertibility, inflation hedging, after convertibility, convertibility is restored, inflation hedging in unproductive assets would diminish and probably diminish rapidly. Anticipating a stable general price level, trillions of immense new savings would be channeled out of global financial arbitrage, speculation, and inflation hedges into long-term capital markets. They're seeking real returns from increased long-term investment in human and fixed capital. Increased savings from income would surely augment the flood tide of investment. Such an outpouring of capital into productive investment must necessarily remobilize sustained demand for unemployed labor at rising real wages in order to work the new and more productive plant and equipment. Indeed, under the true gold standard, the global economy as a whole may even attain balance of payments surplus, equal to the increase in official monetary gold reserves, and thus attain the much sought after IMF rhetoric of global rebalancing, in this case, vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis worldwide gold producers and is hoarding. So here at Cato, we have arrived at the end of one day's intellectual pilgrimage, having traveled through the heart of monetary darkness. <laughs>
much of it clearly associated with the century-long growth of unprecedented powers of discretionary central banking. We have heard the most distinguished scholars dissect the era of the Federal Reserve System and the permutations of its policies. We have focused not on the good intentions, but on the unforeseen consequences of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. We have adhered to the evidence of history by which to judge this most powerful institution of the modern era. It is the historical evidence itself which has pronounced its judgment upon the Federal Reserve System, the institution into whose hands Congress had entrusted the fiduciary responsibility of a great nation's monetary standard and its monetary and banking institutions. But let it be said, however, that the men and women of the Federal Reserve System presided with good intentions. But these good intentions beg the issue. No observation could illustrate more decisively the most fundamental of American propositions, that ours is a, nation's, a nation of laws, not of men endowed with good intentions and unlimited discretion to rule over us without our consent. American history itself reminds us that the solution to the problem of unrestrained central banking lies with the unique power given to Congress under the Constitution specified in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, namely the power of Congress to regulate and to define the dollar and thus to undertake monetary reform. I do not underestimate the level of statesmanship required to undertake monetary reform, but I do say we can now see clearly because of Federal Reserve failures and their consequences what its founders saw in a glass darkly. And so we must not forget that it is the constitutional right. Indeed, I believe it is now the duty of Congress to remedy the defects of one century of American central banking and the predatory consequences of almost one half century of American inconvertible paper money. Under these circumstances, surely we must give thanks for the statesmanship of Kevin Brady, who sat with us just a few moments ago, chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, whose Centennial Monetary Commission aims to study the Federal Reserve System in order wisely to reform it. My dear friends and colleagues, may I say to you that I have been in this fight for 50 years. I shall never give up, nor should you. To our opponents, we shall never yield our historic patrimony, a trustworthy common currency for our common country. May I say further to you, the distinguished gathering in this hall, that the hope of restoration, renewal, and reform of the monetary system rests in your hands. America has never yet failed to restore itself. At the centenary of the Federal Reserve Act, I must believe we do have it within our poor powers to restore a monetary system worthy of a great people, a great nation, a peerless constitution. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lewis. Um, you can see uh, 
the depth of scholarship that Lewis uh, provides to this, uh, this debate and also the passion and energy. And, and for that, I think we all owe him a deep favor. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, John. I want to take some questions now. We've got a few minutes, and I'll see if we can get some questions. There's one. There's Bert. We're going to have to figure out something on these lights. Just the lights got to get. Bert Ely, a banking and monetary policy consultant. Uh, a question: um, As I understand uh, the history of the gold standard, uh, none have ever survived that. At some point in time, due to some event, uh, the countries that have been on it have gone off of it for some reason. What would be different in the future? Why wouldn't we have the same uncertainty in the future uh, that uh, a gold standard, however constructed, would at some point in time fail and cease to function? Well, my answer is that all human institutions go through periods of failure, not least because war, famine, disease, among many other catastrophes which beset human beings, whether it be typhoons in the Philippines or world wars of the kind inaugurated in 1914 and, and 1939. The human enterprise is made up entirely of the conviction of certain men and women, certain civilizations, certain nations who are determined to change things, to change things for the better and not be... Um, uh, disaffected and inert about improving the human condition. For example, uh, can one imagine the American Constitution um, uh, without the intrepid men and women who decided to fight for their independence because the British Empire was the greatest empire in the world with an overpowering uh, uh, military force? No. They had no guarantee that the nation would last. They had no guarantee it would even get through the Articles of Confederation. Nor did they have a guarantee, uh, as General Washington himself said in his farewell address, that it could continue without the, uh, the moorings established by the Constitution and the founding generation. So I, I certainly agree with you. Uh, all human institutions, even the very best created under the American Constitution, are at risk of failure. The question is, do we have the desire to create the least imperfect institutions consistent with the um, mixed human nature, which is always in a position either through uh, war or uh, evil intentions to destroy them. My view is that the whole American experience, the whole American experiment is an example of uh, a worthwhile enterprise, always at great risk of destruction, whether it was the War of 1812 whether it was during the Civil War, whether it was in World War I or World War II, or during the Great Depression, it is always worth the risk to choose institutions which give a longer life to our families, our children, uh, the civilization, which most of our lives uh, were dedicated to preserving. Uh, Carl Golovin, uh, Mr. Lehrman, Article 1, Section 10, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debt. Seems to be the final word on what this nation is to use as money, and it seems to leave the power within the people in every state simply to, with their local and state governments and taxing authorities, 
to make the decision to call on Washington to return the redeemability and gold and silver coin to circulation. Uh, what would your, be, your perspective be on that direct and simple application of the Constitution? So it is the, I, I refrain from mentioning um, Section 10, and um, I'm, I'm glad you have. A uh, combination of Articles 1, uh, Section 8, and Section 10 um, create, in my opinion, um, both a legal opinion as well as an interpretive opinion, um, a constructive presumption that the money of the Constitution was presumed to be uh, gold and silver coin, the content of the currency itself, the unit called the dollar, to be defined by Congress with its unique power to regulate and define the value, uh, uh, the, the value of the currency. Um, I think that constructive presumption, which is not as explicit as one would like it to be in order to um, win the argument hands down as to what the Constitution intended, is mm, reinforced by the Coinage Act of 1792. The very men who and men and women who created the the government, who fought in the Revolutionary War, who sacrificed their, in many cases their lives and their sacred fortunes, uh, the very men who created the government uh, were sitting in the legislature of the United States, a large fraction of them, um, the first Congress of the United States which led to the Coinage Act of 1792, which was presided over by Alexander Hamilton, among, among many of the other founders. And of course, it stipulated in a statute of the Congress of the United States, the supreme law of the land, uh, but for the Constitution, that the monetary unit of the United States would be defined by a weight unit of gold and silver, a bi bimetallic system. Rather than going into the history of the bimetallic uh, system, uh, I think that the combination of Article 1, Sections 8 and 10, they're brief. You can read them very quickly. I think everybody here knows them, and, but if you want to be reminded, it will take 10 minutes. And if you uh, were to look up the statute, uh, uh, the Coinage Act of 1792, defined and established by a large cohort of the founders, um, you would discover what was being said this morning and this afternoon. This is a very short statute. It's a, just a couple of pages long, and it, it, it is so clear and so direct and so precise uh, in what it has to say uh, to the extent that the language, English language, the greatest of all languages, affords this kind of uh, uh, clarity uh, that um, it, 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 it takes a, a lot of argument to persuade me that the, the founders and the Constitution didn't have a view that the gold standard the precious metal standard, the bimetallic standard, the gold standard itself, or the silver standard by itself, was not the presumed money of, uh, of the Constitution and would be a lasting uh, 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 definition of the monetary system of the United States. John. Uh, Lou, I was hoping you could comment on the uh, earlier panel. One of the statements made by the congressman was it was kind of odd. It was about the inflation that might eventually reach us. 
but I think fairly explicit in your talk, which was correct, is that there's all sorts of money locked up in inflation hedges right now. And that one would argue that's why the economy is so slow, that people are investing in wealth that already exists over stock and bond income streams for wealth that doesn't yet exist. Can you comment on this belief that we are not yet in an inflationary period? It seems the price of gold, at least over the last 12 years, has said exactly that. Well, I can I, I concur, John. Uh, so you allow me to advertise my most recent piece in the American Spectator. Uh, I hope you'll indulge me. I I I, I label it. I, I call it, the title I put on it was "Bubbles for the Rich, Food Stamps for the Poor." The title was changed to "Bubbles for the Rich, Welfare for the Poor," and in it I make the case that. Um, um, it is a rather silly notion to uh, suggest that we do not have an inflation. We have, in fact, a global inflation in asset prices. For those of us who work, I, I hate to admit it, on Wall Street, um, we have seen one of the most colossal asset inflations um, of our lifetimes. And I'm sure if, if I were more than 75 years of age, um, I could speak uh, personally, uh, of all American history. This, uh, this global asset inflation has led to a, a tripling of equity prices, despite the fact that this is the slowest economic recovery since the end of the Second World War. It's led to what was said before, I think, correctly. I believe it's indisputable that it was said correctly. This is the biggest bond bubble in the history of consoles, whether British consoles or of, of American uh, Treasury securities, ignited and financed and subsidized by the creation of money by the Federal Reserve System to purchase U.S. government securities from the market on a scale that is so unprecedented that we can almost say that though quantitative easing originated in the earliest years of the Federal Reserve, it's a, a distinction of uh, more than just degree. It's a distinction uh, of kind. But that's not all. I mean, I hail from central Pennsylvania. I happen to have a farm there. Uh, the value of farmland from uh, the early Corn Belt of central Pennsylvania all the way out to Ohio the, uh, has tripled, quadrupled in just a very few years. Uh, so hard assets that are inflation hedges, um, um, financial assets, which are inflation hedges, which are thought to be protect one against inflation, have in fact absorbed the excess money that has been uh, created uh, by the Federal Reserve System and leaked into the system despite their attempt to immobilize it through paying a quarter of 1% on bank deposits to keep it there. Uh, this money has been absorbed by financial assets and real assets, which speculators and investment have the privilege, especially those on Wall, Wall Street who shuffle paper rather than create real goods, to protect themselves while poor people, seniors on, seniors on fixed incomes, those on wages and salary, which always lag the price level, have not been able to do. And that is one of the reasons why I argue that the Federal Reserve has been the single most important cause of the, the intensification of the inequality of wealth in America. So it is a, just a terrible conceit of the chattering class to argue that uh, we have not yet had an inflation. We've had one of the great, infla uh, great inflations 
exhibited in the asset, financial and hard asset markets of American history. All right, we are out of time. So I, and Jim Doran's got a few closing comments, but I want to thank Lewis one more for a great presentation. Thank you. Lewis. Thank you. I just want to thank everybody for uh, coming to the conference again this year and hope you'll be back next year. And uh, certainly want to thank uh, Lou. Uh, his book is outside. If, it's, if there's no more copies left, he said he'd be glad to send you a copy. Uh, all you need to do is uh, give someone on the Cato staff your name and uh, we'll make sure you get a copy. Uh, Lou's, uh, he actually looks more like a professor at Yale than a financier. Uh, so that may be a compliment or not. <laughs> not sure. Uh, as far as good intentions go, you know, I, I have good intentions to rake the leaves until, in, in, until I see my wife doing it. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was glad that Jeb Henserling mentioned the Cato Journal, which I've edited for forever. Uh, the papers from this conference, like all the monetary conferences, will be published in the Cato Journal. Uh, so you can look forward to that. Um, and um, I was going to recommend to uh, Representative Brady that as part of his legislation, he should require people to buy the Cato Journal. Uh, <laughs> that would be a good thing to do. Well, we have a nice reception now. Um, so uh, I invite you to attend that and have a good trip home and be safe. Thank you. Thank you.